tonight I want to continue and hopefully finish um, talking about the understanding and cultivation of wise or appropriate attention. Really a key cultivation that the Buddha says takes us to Nibbana. And to, to point out again that it's Wise attention, the whole concept, is rooted in the fact that we can train our minds and hearts. I know sometimes it can feel like we're the helpless victims of the waves of mental states and physical experience that goes on in a retreat, even when we've been practicing a while, suddenly out of nowhere. Training doesn't mean you just once say, okay, back, you know, and it goes away as we know. But it does mean that we can cultivate where we choose to let the attention dwell and where we choose to allow the attention, the mind, mana, to dwell, that becomes the inclination, the habit of mind. And we've spent all our lives, well, many of us have spent a great part of our lives, what have we been cultivating? Where has the mind been dwelling, left to its own devices? Now, I'll just leave that question for you to look at. And so we can train it. And as I talked about in the last times, when the Buddha is speaking about this concept of appropriate attention in the sutta that we've been using as our base, it's in terms of starving to the point of the absolute uprooting of the deepest, most subtle tendencies or inclination or habit of our mind stream to move in the direction of craving for sensuality, of craving for becoming, of being, for ignorance. So that, that is, by definition, the way the Buddha often describes the arhat one in who all these tendencies have withered away. And just, I'm just reminding you, this is the review section. A sense of how this a moment of asava or this tendency can suddenly spring up in experience. I've gotten to where I love to see it on retreat where it's relatively harm, harmless and you don't get yourself into too much trouble. But as one yogi was describing to me, one three-month retreat, she was very deep into the retreat and felt that she was, you know, really quite mindful. The mind was fairly equanimous. And she watched herself one day after breakfast was over. She was walking past at, at the retreat center where you walk past the food table to get to where you wash your dishes. And at the end of the food table was the, the bowl of fruit. She was completely full not hungry, not worried about later, thought she was quite mindful, but there was this moment of just seeing the orange in the bowl, and the next thing she knew, like her hand just reached out and grabbed it. You know? <laughs> She's like, where did that come from? That's the level of asava. You know, it's a subtle, but uh, it can manifest not so subtly. You know, even when it seems that we're really pretty together. Or the aversive one, someone, I think Sarah mentioned in her talk, someone did, how 
in terms of not killing, we can very deeply intend not to kill, but when you're just on that point of sleep and there's a mosquito buzzing around, and you kind of start, and there isn't a moment to consciously think, oh yes, I'm committed to not killing, and the hand just swats. And you feel terrible, but in that moment, or not, (laughs) but in that moment of swatting, that was the asava, the tendency just shooting up. So I say I love seeing it because if we're living in or practicing under the um, sort of delusion that quite soon and quite easily everything's going to get calm and copacetic and this stuff isn't going to arise anymore, you know, and then this happens and you get really discouraged. No, it's like let's get real. Let's really see how subtle the tendencies are then actually I find much in myself much more appreciation, one, for why practice can be so hard. And that gives me actually more courage and more energy and more willingness to keep going. You know, if I think, well, it's just around the corner and one more experience and I've got it, then when what's just around the corner is, you know, a wave of greed or lust or self-hatred, then we're ready to pack it in. But if we really see, oh yeah, it's just working on deeper and deeper levels, can I summon up the mindfulness, the wise attention, the energy to be here? That's how the mind is trainable. So that's what we're doing. Every moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom from cultivating or strengthening greed, hatred, and confusion. And it is a moment of cultivating and developing wise attention, the factors of awakening. So, as you remember in this sutta about the um, exhaustion of all these tendencies, the Buddha spoke of seven different very practical means in our experience, not just in deep meditation, that we can use wise attention, attention in relationship to what's happening, to retrain and redevelop the heart. So we talked about how the um, tendencies are abandoned by seeing, by insight, by that pure um, entry into emptiness of just perceiving what's here with nothing extra. We talked about how these tendencies are abandoned by restraint, Satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom at the sense doors, right? Not fearfulness of sense contact, not walking around with your head in a bag, although you can try that, but just that moment of pure presence that then it doesn't have to, the consciousness doesn't have to expand into proliferation and papancha and feeding, basically, the hindrances. That satipanya starves the hindrances at that moment of sense contact. And the third was how the asvas can be abandoned by our wise attention to the attitude with which we use things. Remember how we relate to the way we use food, clothing, shelter, medicine, and for us as lay people, for some of us as lay people, Uh, how we relate to entertainment, um, going out, whatever. But remember, this is all in terms of not the outer appearance, but the intention 
with which we meet things. How we relate to these things, what, what relationship increases craving, hostility, confusion in our mind? What relationship decreases those things? And so you can't just say, I know if I lose less. If I use less, I'll decrease craving. You might be increasing craving or decreasing craving, but making yourself totally crazed, you know, increasing delusion. You can't just have a list and go, as I'm sure our venerable ordained Sangha can tell us, just having a list of precepts doesn't just clean the mind out of greed and craving, does it? Or does it? <laughs> but it's, it's a formidable list to use as a guideline to see how the mind is relating when it comes up against any of the precepts. We have our five, they have their eight or ten, he has his 227. <laughs> it's something to be respected, taking that on, you know. So those are the first three. <laughs> like, I really think I'm going to get through four tonight, but I'm going to be a little more brief with the first three. The fourth one is how these tendencies of mind, the habits, can be abandoned by endurance is the common um, translation at this point. But I prefer patience because for, I know for me in English, endurance takes on the quality of kind of grim, aversive, I'll get through it, but aren't your teeth kind of clenched when you're enduring? And when you're patient, Patience is an aspect of metta. So when we talk about endurance, and this is the way the Buddha described it, here a bhikkhu, or anyone practicing, that's you, reflecting wisely, bears cold, heat, hunger, thirst, contact with flies, bugs, wind, burning and creeping things, rain, unwelcome words, and arisen bodily feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing to life. He's moving way beyond that little knee pain. Okay, so endurance or patience is the... I I don't want to spend a lot on this because we talk about it a lot when we talk about mindfulness. That quality of open-hearted presence within whatever the experience is. Just being there with mindfulness without adding anything extra either. Unwelcome words, I can't believe, you know, yada, yada, yada down the road. Oh, unwelcome words feels like this. Racking, piercing, distressing, menacing to life, physical sensation feels like this. And endurance means also connectedness of attention. Otherwise, it moves into that passive, aversive avoidance. Okay, you know, I'll put up with this. In, out, in, out, rising, falling, rising, falling. I'm being really mindful until it goes away. And then, ah, then you really open the field of attention. Next time that really unpleasant noise arises or pain in your body, When it first arises, not when you're already beaten down and the mindfulness is very low, but when it first arises and you notice that, oh no, another hour of this, 
just notice it feels like this. Relax. Open your attention. Open your energy field. Open your cells and meet with totality of attention, whatever that arising experience is. Not in order to anything. Simply because that's what's arising. That's life. That's truth. That's the gateway to liberation in this present moment. It can't be anywhere else. If you're waiting for this to go away, to pay attention, that is what you are strengthening in the habit of mind. Waiting till it gets better. Well, as we all know, none of us are spring chickens here. We can really wait our whole life for it to get better before we really commit to practice. And I don't think (laughs) that it just keeps getting better. I hate to tell you, especially body-wise, it just doesn't keep on getting better. Where are we going to wake up? But this, so patience can bring in a kind of resolve simply to be here. But the being here is just to open into the midst. So we, we all know what that is. I don't need to really talk about it a lot more. But the patience is regarding both so-called external and internal phenomena. You know, some person acting a way we don't like, our body-mind acting a way we don't like. Of course, who doesn't like it's the other question. Oh, but I do want to read you this, this from Patrul Rinpoche, the words of my perfect teacher. He's talking about arousing bodhicitta, but he mentions three aspects of patience. And these three lines have stayed with me when I'm in a really difficult retreat, like I was a couple of years ago. These lines would come. It's not just like, oh, okay, I can keep going. It would totally open my heart and mind. So this is transcendent patience, is to have patience when wronged, when wronged by others. The second type is the patience to bear hardships for the Dharma, all the things that happen. And the third is the patience to face the profound truth without fear. Just calling up those lines, one of them fits anything that's going on that you don't like. And just when you're thinking, oh yeah, I can find the patience to bear hardships for the Dharma. And you're just there, moment to moment. And in that moment of cultivating that patience, what's withering? The tendency to aversion, the tendency to greed. What's strengthening? Metta, mindfulness, clear seeing, all the factors of awakening. Now, the next one, you would think, why didn't he put this one first, is the tendencies that are, are um, abandoned by avoiding difficult situations. Now, of course, there's an obvious reason why this isn't first, because we'd much prefer to avoid than to endure. And sometimes I think it's tricky both ways to know what's avoidable. He says, reflecting wisely, a bhikkhu avoids a savage elephant, a savage bull, a savage dog, a snake, a stump, a cliff, a cesspool, a sewer. 
He avoids sitting on unsuitable seats, frequenting unsuitable friends, so that wise companions in the life might believe or that he would be more drawn into unwise action. So what can be abandoned by avoiding really means using our wise discrimination to see what experiences are just plain dangerous and what others, now this is my words now, not the Buddha's, are just plain stupid, you know, that we don't need to keep going back there over and over and over. So say, for example, you're trying to sit outside because you think I need to be with nature and it's lightning and the mosquitoes are biting you and you are filled with aversion, just filled with aversion, no mindfulness, it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Do you think this is helpful in that moment? What is being cultivated? It's not just, we're not talking a moment of aversion, but just feeding, feeding, feeding. There can be other times when that could be totally appropriate because you're just looking at the fear and by being there and noticing the mental states, calm and acceptance and equanimity are growing. It's really looking at what's being fed. There's a sutta, another sutta, that I like very much, that to me expresses this knowing what's appropriate, really, for deepening our understanding and practice, and what is more useful to avoid. And it's a, it's a, a parable, really, a simile, where the Buddha talks about a falcon suddenly was flying and swooped down and caught a quail, you know, in the air. And while he was carrying, she was carrying the quail away, the quail started moaning and saying, oh, stupid me, it serves me right. If I had kept to my own natural territory, you know, the territory of my kind today, I would have been safe. You know, but I went outside of my natural territory and you caught me. And the falcon said, it was not um, particularly proud, but it said, well, what's your natural territory? And the quail said, it's a field that's been all turned up by the plow, so that's a bare field with many clods of earth, you know, really bumpy and uneven. And so the falcon was not, you know, in pride or anything, but she let the quail go and said, go ahead, go to your natural territory, but I'll still be able to catch you. You know, it wasn't boastful, but just saying, I know I can still do it. Let the quail out. She went into this field and was standing by a clod of earth. The falcon went diving down towards the quail. But just before the falcon got there, the quail jumped into the clod of earth and the falcon missed her and just hit the ground, you know, and I think killed herself. So what the Buddha is saying is stay within your own reach. Stay within appropriate territory. And of course, he says, what to, a monk, what is roaming outside of one's own pasture, one's own territory? And he says, uh, for monks or for those practicing, it's to get really caught in sense desire. That's roaming outside of our territory. What's staying within our territory is the four foundations of mindfulness. Satipanya at the sense doors, rather than just spinning our gears on wanting and reacting to sense pleasures. But I think that can actually be expanded a lot in the ways that we practice. There's a reason we come on intensive retreat to such a conducive environment. 
I mean, it's a choice not to have CNN going in the corner of the meditation hall here. You know, there's a reason we don't have um, internet access data ports in each of your rooms. You know, it's like what's really helpful for practice. And sometimes I know people, all of us, can get be confronted with something maybe quite quite difficult in practice internally or externally, or when we go home again, think, well, I should be able to be purely mindful no matter what the conditions. And you had it, it's okay, I can do whatever I want, for example, when I go home, because if I really could practice, I could be mindful in any conditions whatsoever. Completely unrealistic. And sometimes on, on retreat, and the Buddha doesn't so specifically speak of this, but I want to bring it up. There can be times when what we need to avoid isn't so much an outer savage elephant or a cesspool, but something that's arising internally. For example, a sudden release of old traumatic memory that we weren't familiar with. Sometimes that happens and it comes up so sudden and so strong that Basically, I would say the mindfulness does not have an equal strength to the intensity of the terror, for example. This is just an example that might come up with that memory. And, of course, we attempt to be mindful, to be present. But what starts happening is it just starts spiraling, like way out of control. And by out of control, first it feels out of control, that's okay. Way out of control is really where you've lost any mindfulness except there's a thing in your back of your mind, I should be able to get through this. So it's push, 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 and the whole thing is just getting more and more and more into the realm of feeding fear. Usually, way before that time, the teacher is begging you, begging you on hands and knees to sit less, not to push so much, and you're thinking, that's because they think I'm a wimp, but I'll show them I'll just really get through this, right? There are times when wise avoidance really means turning your attention elsewhere. Because in the moment, what's really being strengthened by the way you're practicing is willpower, terror, no anger or fear. And you need to turn the attention elsewhere to rebalance, reconnect with mindfulness, reconnect with calm, reconnect with the wholesome energies, and then again, come back and meet. It's a, a whole, the whole field of skillful means is in many ways, I think, contained in this learning when it's appropriate to avoid. But again, it's in the intention. You come in here and it's hotter than you like and you think, you know, I can't turn on the AC, but I don't like to be with the heat, so I'm getting out of here. And the intention, if you tune in, is completely aversive. That's not skillful means. That is not abandoning the tendencies. That's the tendencies are running the show. That's the time to sit here and sweat. You know? Like Ajahn Sumedho said when he talks about patience, if you listen to his talks, I I skipped all this, but practicing in Asia is great because you get endless, endless talks about patience and avoidance. He was giving one talk about, you know, the endless heat in the hot season in Thailand or the rainy season where it rains like this, but it's about 20 degrees hotter and more humid. 
And he said he's just sweating through the robes day after day, just sweating through these thick robes. And then he said he'd finally think, I just can't bear this another. I just can't bear it. And then the next moment you'd find, well, you could really bear it a little longer. <laughs> Have you ever come up to that point? I just can't bear this. And I go, oh, can't bear it. Feels like this, you know, and then you're just there again. So patience would be the first line. Avoidance is later. But seeing what really does not contribute to practice. And, of course, living much more simply, avoiding having sense pleasures hit you in the face every time you turn around because craving is just so strong that not to expect you're suddenly going to be free of it. Remember what what Shankara said, that craving is intensified if we let our thoughts dwell upon sense objects and seek temporary satisfaction in the objective world. Or as Thich Nhat Hanh describes it, you know, sometimes he would come into his house and he had left all his windows open and the wind had come and just blown everything all over the place, topsy-turvy, you know, come in, close the windows, straighten up. And he says, we're like that. It's as if all our sense doors are the windows and we just walk around with them wide open saying, yes, everything, just come on in, you know. I should be able to be mindful of all of it. Or maybe we're not even trying to be mindful, but we just let ourselves be bombarded, you know. He says, and this, I was just reading this little section from him where he said, at that time in France, workers were demonstrating to have five hours less a week of work. He says, but what are people going to do with that five hours? Go home and watch something stupid on TV that just, you know, increases agitation or boredom because we're so afraid to be alone, you know. So when the mindfulness isn't that strong, when the energy's low, when the mind is agitated, then we shut the windows. We come to somewhere like this where we're not continually bombarded to cultivate the wholesome factors, you know, to learn how to do that. And then when we go out, why is it so agitating? One of the reasons, when you leave a retreat, sure, partly it's the concentration, but partly our sense doors have gotten so cleansed, so much more purified, we're so much more sensitized to what's actually coming in. And it's appalling, you know, the experience internally. Oh my, once I left a retreat and stopped off in Walmart, I tell you, it was like a vortex of suffering walking into Walmart trying to buy some stupid thing, you know. Oh, wow. Now, I'm not saying we're practicing to be unable to function in the world. No. But it's to learn how to use wise attention to make our choices when to open the windows or when we have no choice but they're open, how to be mindful, how not to just let that sweep us away. And so for practice, we need um, to have some more protected, some way of avoiding, so we can learn how the mind works. The sixth one the Buddha speaks about is um, tendencies, asavas, habits of mind, that can be abandoned by removing. He's speaking particularly about thought here. And again, it's interesting, because we sometimes take this in an inaccurate way, one based in aversion. He says, here a bhikkhu reflecting wisely, 
does not endure a thought arisen, excuse me, that's affected by sensual desire, by ill will, or by cruelty. He abandons it. (laughs) Now this language is why we tend to take this a little uh, unhelpfully. He abandons it, removes it, does away with it, and annihilates it. Right? So that that language can certainly feed all too easily into get out the hammer and you know, whack that thought with the hammer. Bad thought, bad thought, bad me, shouldn't have it. Now, I don't need to tell you, do I, that that is not, <laughs> that is not what the Buddha is talking about. But it's very interesting because what he is pointing to, in my understanding, is on a more subtle level of wise attention, on the level of thought, we certainly are not always so balanced in our mindfulness and concentration that we are able to see each thought just as it arises and it has no energy. There are times like that, right? Where even what a thought that might be the most cruel or lustful or aversive just comes up with nothing behind it. Poof! Like Joseph says, and the sky is blue, you know, I really hate everybody and everything, and the sky is blue, and they're equally empty. Nothing to do about that. No need to do anything. But there are times when a thought comes laden with the intention, the motivation of ill will, cruelty, self-hatred, confusion. We may not notice it at the beginning, but whenever we notice it, this is where he's talking about wise attention at this point. Not to, he says, not to endure it, not to be <laughs> what Larry, comes to my mind, Larry Brosenberg, who is hysterical, um, mimicking kind of the New Age way of dealing with Kalesa, which is we must massage our Kalesa. We must be kind to our Kalesa. No, no. The Buddha is not saying, oh, yes, nice ill will, you know. There's a point where with a balance of wisdom mind, again as Satipanya, we can summon up resolution and clear seeing in relationship to these really harmful, harmful to us, unskillful trains of thought that left alone, they are the pattern that are feeding the tendencies of greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's really talking about resolution. We really can see that thought and go, no, not now. No, not in the beginning of a retreat when we're bombarded, no. But when there's a certain degree of mindfulness and balance, and this comes and goes, as you know, but we often just kind of sit back and wait a little more than we need to. And because we can have such a tendency to get into self-judging, sometimes I think we're a little leery of calling on resolution. And we just turn, you know, kind of into mushy meditation. Resolution is a powerful force in the mind. No, not now. If you, like if you get into some kind of VR, you know, Vipassana romance or vendetta, where every time you think of or see the person, there's craving or aversion. Or you don't even see him, you just think about him. You know, and that, it's, it's so unpleasant and it's so draining. And you can feel, people do often feel quite victimized by that. 
or into hatred of it. But you can really say, as soon as you notice it, at whatever point, no, not going there. It's not bad me, ugly me. It's not going there, no. A very, very clear example of this in my life, quite some years ago when I came down with some autoimmune disease that was going in not a good direction. And one of these things that nobody really knew how it would go or how bad it could be. It could have gotten really quite crippling. And in the early days of it, when the mind would start going, I'll never be able to take a walk again. You know, at that point I couldn't walk very well. I'll never be able to blah, blah, or fear and distress and grief. And these thoughts, always this is going to happen or could be. And that went on a week or two, you know, seeing all the doctors, and it doesn't help that train of thought, really, because they give you a list starting with the worst possibility, you know, and then going down from there. Um, but after a while, I saw them mind doing this. I thought, I don't know. I have no clue. And as soon as my mind was going, oh, it's going to be, don't know. Stay right here. I'd be leaning down, I remember when I was leaning down to wash out a bathtub, it was really hard to lean down, hard to reach, painful, and when the mind starts, I said, no, don't know, right here. Just feel stiffness and impatience. And that, I, that was a lifesaver. I mean, that was absolute, just this resolution, you don't need to endure or allow those thoughts to keep going when you have sufficient mindfulness to see it. But it takes that willingness to just every single time you notice, okay, no, not now. I've got to have that orange. No, not now. Wanting feels like this. It's not saying I don't feel wanting. It's just not going into those thoughts. Play with it. When you notice, when it starts to move from balanced resolution into aversion, You may notice it right away if you're there. It has a whole different contextual feel. If you don't notice it right away, believe me, you'll notice it soon enough because you're feeding the aversion and you'll end up frustrated or, you know, in self-judgment or angry or lustful or whatever. Rather than judge that, you start right then. Ah, lust feels like this, you know? Each moment's a new moment. But this is extremely powerful. And there's a whole, a whole sutta, a different sutta that I wanted to talk about, but I'll never get through the factors of enlightenment, so I'm just going to mention it, that deals directly with this, uh, the uh, tendencies abandoned by removing, which is, uh, the sutta is called the removal of distracting thoughts. I'm sure a lot of you know it, where the Buddha lists five different methods for dealing with basically distracting thoughts, thoughts that are coming in and taking you away from meditation. And again, it's so practical, you know, he's not, he realizes everyone isn't sitting in such sublime mindfulness that you barely have to advert attention to the thought and it goes. You know, he realizes. So I'm not, I'm just going to mention the five without elaborating in case something hits you. The first one is all of these are when just sati, mindfulness of the thought, isn't enough. You know, when you say, oh, you know, ill will arising, ill will arising, <laughs> ill will arising, and finally, you really have to do something else or it's taking over. 
So the first is to simply move the attention away from the unwholesome by substituting a wholesome thought. In this way, substituting metta for ill will. Not the phony, yes, I pretend, I accept, you know, but if you're in ill will, I find metta not to the person I'm feeling ill will for, metta to myself, you know, feeling the ill will. Or if it's with cruelty, compassion, or if it's uh, delusion, then actually to reflect on some inspiring dhamic theme can actually switch the train of thought. It goes into a lot of detail. So one is changing the attention, substituting the wholesome for the unwholesome. I call it changing the channel. The second one would be uh, with discerning wisdom, not so much thinking about, but by looking, noticing and examining the danger in that unwholesome train of thought. So for example... um, anger or ill will. I remember one retreat I was sitting where somebody called me out of retreat when I was on staff at IMS to discuss some business that could definitely have waited three days and that person definitely knew better than to do that but was just in his own little and it just got all this anger going you know and self-righteousness and the whole yada yada and I kept practicing with it tuning into the anger until I really saw, oh, how just letting this run like this is feeding it, and it's so much suffering. And it's dangerous because what's happening is feeding my belief in my righteousness, feeding the tendency for anger to take over, feeding all these unwholesome thoughts about a really good person. It was nothing wholesome. And whether I was right or not, who cared, you know? What difference did I make? And then in the scheme of things, it was such a little thing. So having some reflection through experientially tuning into the dangers, you know, of just going after that pleasant fantasy every time it comes up. Not the dangers of bad person, but actually what's being fed by doing that. And what's the ultimate outcome of feeding that craving, that ill will, that's how we're going to be in life, you know. The third, when these two don't work, is to just try to forget those thoughts altogether, not even substituting something wholesome that's relational, but just go to something neutral, for example. You know, when we say steady the mind, just come back to the breath. Just forget it and come back to the breath or go to hearing or go to body sensations. Just advert your attention elsewhere. The fourth is to give, again, some dhamma vichaya, some uh, investigation to looking at and stilling the cause of these thoughts. So, for example, you keep getting into pleasant fantasy, pleasant fantasy. You notice it and are present, but you don't see how you're getting in it. And you look a little closer with investigation and see, oh, an image. It's pleasant. You didn't notice pleasant and you're off. Noticing that cause with mindfulness right there, stilling, that just stills the whole thing, you know. Or for me, I notice with anger, when I really get to feeling it, underneath it there's some hurt. When I'm able to just feel the hurt with mindfulness, that whole train of angry thoughts just is stilled, is stopped. And the fifth, which everyone always likes the most, 
If there's still unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate, and with delusion, then with the teeth clenched and the tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, he should beat down, constrain, and crush the unwholesome state of mind with a wholesome state of mind. But he's basically saying, you never give up. You never just go, okay, take me, you know. (laughs) You keep on trying. But with a wholesome state of mind, I will leave you to explore how that's possible. And I will just end this section with, this is how he ends the sutta. This bhikkhu then is called a master of the courses of thought. He will think whatever thought he wishes to think, and he will not think any thought he does not wish to think. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be something? Your severed craving, flung off the fetters, and with complete penetration of conceit, he has made an end of suffering. So that's a definition of arhat. But wouldn't that be nice? Just that possibility, a master of the courses of thought. And remember, everything he says, if it were not possible, I would not tell you to do so. So the last one, which is, of course, four talks in itself. So I can only just highlight, and I know this is a lot of information. Please don't try to remember it all. I'm just hopeful that any particular piece that is kind of concurrent with something that's happening in your practice right now or in the next days, it has a way of, of going in you know, and popping up in our mind at the right time. So trust that. Please don't try and remember all of this because that actually just blocks the whole process of mindfulness and the surrender into the process. So the seventh way is the uh, asavas or tendencies that can be abandoned by developing. And what he's talking about developing are the seven factors of awakening, the bojangas, the factors of enlightenment. And these factors of enlightenment, on one level, they're spoken of, where's all my notes? On one level, they're spoken of as being coming to full perfection in a completely awakened person. But the Buddha is also quite clear that as we practice and develop the four foundations of mindfulness, simply by steadily cultivating the four foundations of mindfulness, we cultivate and bring to perfection the seven factors of enlightenment. And these are seven factors of mind that we all of you are experiencing from time to time, as not just from time to time, a lot. But they can come and go in strength and in balance relative to each other. And it's a very, very useful kind of self-guidance in terms of your practice. If you're feeling like off, just kind of run through the seven and see, is one really low or is some really out of balance? So these seven are mindfulness, of course, the balancing of all. And then there are three energizing factors, which is dhamma-vichaya, or investigation of dhammas. This is not analyzing, and I'll explain each one. Uh, Energy, virya, rapture, p, 
piti. Those are the energizing three. And then there's three that are tranquilizing. Samadhi, tranquility itself, and equanimity, upekka. And for those who get stuck in always evaluating your practice by samadhi, you may notice it's one of seven. All seven are equally important, and really when our practice deepens and develops is when all seven are coming into balance and strengthening together. And as the Buddha said, each of these seven, the proximate or the immediate cause for each one is wise attention, appropriate attention. And that's what's so fascinating. I want to read you a couple of things. The, the wise attention, what all the seven are based on. He says, Bhikkhus, whatever beings there are which assume the four postures, in other words, whatever beings stand, walk, sit, lie down from time to time, they're all assuming those four postures based upon the earth, established upon the earth, right? Couldn't do it without the earth. So, just as is based upon earth, the postures, a bhikkhu cultivates and develops the seven factors of enlightenment based upon virtue, established upon sila. So the very first requisite is virtue, morality, purity of action and speech. It doesn't mean you never did anything bad, but really reflecting on this when you're practicing, is the foundation for the cultivation of the seven factors. And then, more specifically, how he talks about wise attention. He says, an internal factor. As to internal factors, I do not see any other factor that is so helpful for the arising of the seven factors of enlightenment as this, careful attention. No other internal factor as important for the arising of all seven as careful attention. When a bhikkhu is accomplished in careful attention, in all the ways we're talking about, it is expected that he will develop and cultivate the seven factors of enlightenment. It just follows. Now, and this is also very interesting. Bhikkhus, as to external factors, I do not see any other factor that is so helpful for the arising of the seven factors of enlightenment as this, good friendship. When a bhikkhu has a good friend, it is expected that he will develop and cultivate the seven factors. And by good friend, he basically means wise, you know, someone... And for each of the seven factors, as we'll just briefly discuss, describe the factors, but he also gives, there's also in the commentaries, lists of supporting factors that we need to give wise attention to, to develop and increase. And in each of the seven, supporting factor is to avoid, say if it's concentration, to avoid the company of unconcentrated, scattered, rough people, and to cultivate, you know, being friends with wise, calm, concentrated people for each of the seven factors. 
So externally, he sees no other factor so helpful. Being here, when we talk about Sangha as a refuge, not only the Sangha of awakened noble ones, but our friends, our colleagues on the Dhamma path. It's not good friendship like the person you call up and pour your heart out to. It's association with the wise, association with the mindful, association with the virtuous. How fortunate are we in this world, given the world as it is. It's the same as when you came here. Not much better, not much worse, about the same. To be able to associate such protracted periods of time with good friends, incredibly fortunate. Use that. It's the base. That and virtue is the base from which we can cultivate wise attention, from which the seven factors of awakening develop. Oh, and just, oh, never mind. (laughs) All these things I want to say, but we don't have time for them all. So I just will briefly name them and some of the additional factors, not all. Mindfulness, of course, the overbalancing factor. You can't really have too much mindfulness. And whenever you're out of balance and you don't know, you can't tell what's going on, you're always safe to come back to mindfulness. And as you know, that's the quality of clear seeing. Knowing what's happening, not superficial. That image of you throw a cork on a river and it bounces around on the top. You throw a rock in and it sinks in. That's mindfulness. And you all know mindfulness. We've talked about it a lot. Remember when we talked about feeding and starving the hindrances with wise attention? It's just the same with the seven factors. So feeding each of these seven factors, what do we give wise attention to? Well, the first cause for mindfulness is mindfulness itself. One moment of mindfulness is the cause, really, the immediate cause for the next moment of mindfulness to arise. So we give wise attention to one moment of mindfulness, meeting what's happening right here, always the fallback, the most important. So that's really one of the main wise attentions of mindfulness. The avoiding unmindful, associate with mindful, mindfulness in the broader areas, And this also, each of the seven factors ends with this, to give wise attention to inclining the mind towards being mindful. Again, this is really seeing more that we can cultivate and train the mind. So you don't just sit here and go, someday, some moment I know mindfulness will arise. You know, if I sit and walk long enough from somewhere, it'll come. Inclining the mind is just really, in a way, it says, I'm making mindfulness a priority. You do little things like saying, I really try to be so mindful just this one stretch of walking. Or I'm going to be as mindful as possible as I get up from sitting and move out out of the hall. Inclining the mind with that resolution and interest to mindfulness, enormously powerful, wise attention. The second, Dhamma Vichaya, or investigation, this is not thinking about things. It's described as 
um, the quality when it's present of the mind lights up the field of awareness. It's like walking into a dark room and turning on a flashlight. You can suddenly see what's there. You know, it has to me a quality of interest that's not thinking about things, but in shining that light of mindfulness, it really allows discerning insight to arise. For example, you suddenly, there's a sensation, you're struggling, you're struggling, you're mindful, and in that next moment, oh, tingling, coming and going, it's impermanent, you know? That light of Dhamma Vichaya, of investigation, that just lets you see it clearly, lights up the field of awareness, illuminates so that you can see the, the true nature of experience in that moment, dissipates confusion. It's an energizing factor. I find for myself, it's one I often forget to look for, but when things are feeling flat and I think, well, everything's going okay, but it's so, uh, uh, you know, what's the matter? I'll look and see there's not that investigation. I'm kind of meeting it with mindfulness, but just like, oh yeah, oh yeah. And you can just bring a little interest and it lights up the field just in that moment. The first cause is, guess what? Mindfulness, active mindfulness that connects with the the moment of experience so that there is a direct perception. And this, again, requires wise attention directed towards mindfulness. So really, you see, if you're having wise attention towards mindfulness, there'll be mindfulness which will also naturally lead to dhamma-vichaya, investigation of states. It happens by itself. And again, um, there are additional supports to which we can direct wise attention, which there's no way I can say them all, But again, as avoiding foolish people, being with wise people, cleanliness, keeping the internal sense bases, keeping yourself clean and orderly, and keeping your environment clean and orderly. Very interesting, but it tends to help the mind light up. And again, a total commitment, inclining the mind in the direction of interest. The third is virya, courageous effort which has the characteristic of, it supports us. Its function is to support us and give us kind of a refreshment of mind that helps us be with the difficult. Difficult pain or emotional stuff wears us down. And Upandita gives the example of a house, an old shack that's falling apart, and you prop it up with strong boards so it kind of comes back erect and is strong again. That is how virya works. It's not just that, you know, we're just a whirlwind of energy, but to bring in energy refreshes the mind so, ah, yes, it's been all withered, but you come back up again and can be with what is difficult. When the energy is low, or when we're really feeling worn down, the mind is withering away, He gives a whole series of additional supports because, of course, just wise attention and commitment to energy is is the first cause. But he gives a whole bunch, series of actual reflections that can help to arouse 
the energy that gives the mind the freshness to be with what's difficult, such as you're reflecting on precious opportunity, you know, that's what I was sort of saying, how fortunate we are. Reflecting on actually states of misery, you know, it's like, oh, this is just too hard, I don't want to do it, I just can't be with it anymore, you know. I think about what the alternative is. You know, it's something that's okay, I think I'll pay attention now. But reflecting on um, noble ones, teachers, awakened ones, people that really inspire you. Reflecting on appreciation for the support that allows us to practice. The support of staff, the support of dana. This isn't just for ordained sangha, but for all of us. When I was a nun, reflecting on how you know, I was fed and clothed and housed by people who loved the Dhamma and wanted me to be able to practice. It, we, turn, we can turn that into a guilt trip in the West. It's not a guilt trip. It's a profound, energizing um, reflection. Like, yes, what an opportunity. It's so beautiful, this Dhamma, and that brings like a natural energy. Not a should, but you become filled with energy. Okay, I can sit with this knee pain, this self-hatred, another couple of minutes, you know, whatever. So a lot of reflection, remembering the greatness of the Buddha, of teachers, appreciating um, the people that we're practicing with. And again, inclining the mind towards resolution, right? Not just, ah, I can't do it, I'm too hard, but really saying, okay, just one more step. That's all we need. One more breath. One more moment. Not the whole day, but there's rarely, I don't know if I can ever think of a time when I couldn't have really honestly said, you know, I can be with this one more breath, one more step, if I'm just willing. And then there's piti, or rapture. Rapture, a funny word in English. Um, Piti is a mental state. It has the characteristic of happiness, delight, satisfaction. It's like when PT is there in your experience, you're really into it. You know, it's like you're interested in what's happening. There's a lot of energy. PT actually uh, manifests a lot as energy. The, the mind feels very light and energy, energized. The body is very light and agile. It was all this pain, and it was heavy and cramped, and you know, and it's like that. And all of a sudden, you're just sitting there, and you go, what happened? Same position. I can even find that same sensation that was just driving me nuts, but it just doesn't matter, you know? Um, the body is very light. Um, there often PT, besides this joyous interest, manifests as physical sensations. Lightness, floating, sometimes really, I have to say, bizarre physical sensations that it's like way too much energy out of balance. You're really literally flipping all around the room, you know, and you go, come in and the teacher goes, oh yeah, that's PT. This is PT, you know, (laughs) enough already. It's out of balance. But it has a lot of physical energetic manifestation. If you really look, you might think it's unpleasant, but if you really look when it's PT, it's not unpleasant. Your mind might be reacting, but if you really look, it's not unpleasant. The proximate cause is, guess what? Wise attention. Wise attention to wholesome feelings, wholesome thoughts associated with Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. 
actually, this is one of the definitions of right effort. In fact, if you read or hear the way the Buddha defines right effort, it's actually exactly the same as wise intention. The four right efforts, I I have it in my mind, but I just want to say it more precise, if I can find it. But that would really be what, when he's talking about wise attention to wholesome factors. Right effort is defined as zeal or energy for the abandoning of arisen unwholesome states. Zeal for the non-arising of unarisen unwholesome states. Was that too many uns? Did that make sense for you non-English speakers? It's like an unwholesome state has not arisen, and there's a zeal to keep it that way, basically. But the others are zeal for the arousal of unarisen wholesome states and for the continuance and strengthening of arisen wholesome states. So wise effort and wise attention isn't just about getting rid of what's unwholesome. It's about recognizing the wholesome and giving that attention. That's also wise attention. So giving attention to the wholesome when it's arising is one of the things that leads us into piti, into rapture. And again, there's, there's many possibilities. If you want to look up at some point all these different supportive areas to pay wise attention to for each of them. Upandita's book, In This Very Life, is a great resource because it's all collated there in the chapter on the seven factors of enlightenment. Trying to remember it all isn't helpful, but if you're exploring a particular one or feeling, you can't really feel in yourself a particular one, it might be helpful just to read what the, between five and 11 for each of them, supporting factors are and explore those in your practice and see how wise attention can help to cultivate them. It's really, you know, quite scientific and accessible. So again, as with all, inclining the mind towards piti, um, which is the energy to be mindful, which leads to concentration. And when there's some concentration and mindfulness, when the mind has to be relatively clear of kalesa, that's when piti can arise. There won't be strong piti if the mind is also kind of racked with greed or aversion or delusion. They just don't go together. So those are the three energizing, right? And you can see how all of those, piti is hugely energizing, energy, yeah, and also... um, Investigation is energizing. They need to be balanced with the three calming. I'm going to go a little bit over. I won't go too much over, but if you really are hurting and you can't sit anymore and you want to leave, it's okay. It won't hurt my feelings. But I'll just briefly name the other three because I won't be here next week to finish. The three calming ones are tranquility. Tranquility is very important. We often don't uh, recognize it. It has the quality of non-agitation of body and mind, of coolness. It takes the heat out of the restlessness of mind. And I think maybe restlessness, we don't quite recognize the power of restlessness. Something, the way Upandita described it, I didn't realize this, but as soon as I read it, it makes total sense. 
that restlessness, the scattered mind, is a very powerful state. It has the state, it has the quality of being able to uh, kind of infect other mental states that arise at the same time. And he gives a specific example of samadhi, of concentration. You could be quite restless, and there's samadhi, but it's infected with that restlessness. So it's not really wise samadhi, you know? The mind can be very sinking into something, but jumping all over the place. And when there's this restless quality that that infects other mental states, that's when we don't really quite have control of our speech and actions. It's kind of how here as a yogi, you think you're being mindful, and suddenly you say something or do something, it just blurts out. Or you just suddenly do something, and later you go, "How, how could I have done that? I knew better, you know? And we all do that. Or you're just kind of acting out in unskillful ways, even though it's very subtle. This is the manifestation of restlessness and tranquility, a cool calmness, non-agitation of mind, of body, you know, cools this out. Um, Again, wise attention is the proximate cause, wise attention to wholesome mental states. Again, wise effort. You can also, when you notice the mind is restless, give attention more to singularity of experience rather than running after the restlessness. Give attention to calmness. Just be with the breath, for example. Just feel the stillness of your body and don't let yourself move. And let that stillness of body bring in stillness of mind for example, inclining the mind towards peacefulness. We often don't recognize the restlessness and let it run the show. Samadhi, of course, which is not necessarily extended in time, but the quality of non-scatteredness, the factor of mind, of attention, which really stands on whatever is arising, just right with that sensation of breath, that emotion, that image. It's just right there without wavering at all, even if it's just for a moment. It sinks into it. Still, calm, stays there. Samadhi could be on changing objects, so it doesn't have that sense of absorption in one thing, which is also samadhi, on unchanging. But when there's samadhi, even though the arising and passing objects are changing, each moment of mindfulness has that steadiness, that immovable quality, that really connecting and sinking in. And one other interesting aspect of samadhi is sort of like the restlessness in reverse, is when samadhi's in the mind, it has the function of whatever other mental states are arising simultaneously, it collects them all together. So that when we talk about the collection of mind, the unification of mind, It's a real power of mind. This is a function of samadhi. It's one of the reasons when there's samadhi, to whatever extent, there's such a sense of peace. We actually don't realize how distracted and scattered the mind is. Even as our practice is being developed, as mindfulness is being cultivated, there's still, the mind's kind of, you know, more and more subtly. With samadhi, all of a sudden, all that's brought together just in that one moment. It's calm. It's peaceful. 
That's why tranquility and samadhi so go together. And the last is, of course, equanimity. The mind that isn't pulled to and fro by either clinging or aversion. Or, again, I like the way Sayadawji describes it. He says, it's actually a state of mind in the center, a balancing of energy. So that it's actually an energetic state where it's quite alert, but the energy isn't tipping towards and away, towards and away. You know how that is. Just really balanced in the center. That's the state of equanimity. And wise attention to the continuity of mindfulness is what cultivates equanimity. Because the continuity is what leads to the wisdom of really seeing pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, give it up, you know, and the mind balances in the middle. So obviously much more I could say about them all, but those are the seven. And the Buddha himself talks about when it is useful to cultivate the arousing ones and when it is not useful, you know. So, for example, and I'm picking concentration because people really seem to get a bugaboo. They always think they need to cultivate concentration. I've hardly, once in a while it happens, but rarely does someone come in and say, I'm too concentrated, I need to cultivate investigation. Once in a while it does, someone who's been practicing a lot. But usually, no matter what's going on, we just want more concentration. But if you're sluggish, if you're dull, if the energy's low, you might be really, really calm. And we'll say, get up, quit sitting, and go walk. No, I'm calm, I'm peaceful, I'm concentrated. There's absolutely no interest or idea of what's happening. You need to really consciously bring wise attention to the energizing factors. You know, you don't need to cultivate more calm. You don't want to get rid of the calm, but you need to bring up the energy. And just the reverse. When you're, you know, you're really filled with piti and rapture and you're just you know, going into rhapsodies in your mind about the beauty of the Dhamma and how exquisite it is and every new insight. Guess what? You know, when you come in and you want to tell us all your insights, and we, that's nice. Did you notice the sensation in your body? You know? <laughs> we won't go down that road with you. It's because you need to cultivate calmness, steadiness, concentration, and equanimity. Okay, that was a nice insight. It's over. Back with Cleopatra. What's happening now? Equanimity. And as I said, if you're ever in doubt, mindfulness is always cultivatable and useful as a balance. As you strengthen mindfulness with wise attention, you'll see more clearly how the others are out of balance. And so... I just end with this one quotation from the Buddha about the seven factors. But this could be said about all of our wise attention. The peaked house. Bhikkhus, just as all the rafters of a peaked house, like a sharp peaked roof, slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, so too, when a bhikkhu develops and cultivates the seven factors of enlightenment, he slants, slopes, and inclines towards nibbana. And one who cultivates the four foundations of mindfulness, 
slants, slopes, and inclines towards cultivating the seven factors of awakening. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. And thank you for your patient attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.